This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. I've always admired Julia for forging her own path. To thrive in so many different roles in the entertainment industry for as long as she has is a testament to a remarkable strength of character. I loved her honesty and warmth in this discussion of her five. Julia, uh, how did you find the process of deciding? Easy? Hard? Yeah, look, of course, there were three books I would have liked to have chosen and there would have been a bazillion songs and possession was actually not too hard. Um, And don't you think, too, I wonder if people sometimes pick what they're feeling now. If we were to do this again in 10 years' time, if we had done this 20 years ago, I think where you are at your, uh, in your life is where you might uh, land on, the, on your choices. Yeah, 100%. And, and, and for me, it's not about being the favourite. It's just something that uh, is meaningful to you. And a bit like uh, whether it's Ando's Brush With Fame or your home delivery, I, I love a format. Yeah, so, so, so do I. So other than just let's have a chat and tell all the same stories all over again, it's have a format. Oh, yeah. And so, uh, and you're rather good at that. So I, I'm in the presence of greatness. So um, we're going to take you through your five and we're going to start traditionally, as we always do, with the film. And you've chosen Druck. Yes. Or in English, Another Round, the Oscar winning Danish film. Tell us why you've chosen that. Look, I'll tell you for why. Nigel, I uh, fell for a Danish guy about uh, 15 years ago, very momentarily, but I, he was lovely. Uh, uh, but I thought to myself, I don't know anything about Denmark. And so being a bit obsessed with him, when I got back to Australia, I started looking at all kinds of Danish stuff, Danish TV. And before Borgen, before the killing, before, you know, the bridge, there was a show called Unit One. And it had a female at the head of it all, but Mass Mikkelsen, the, probably the most famous Danish actor, was in it. And I thought, who's he? Hello, what's going on here? And he plays soccer and he used to be a dancer. And because uh, I read that and uh, I loved it. And I fell in love with that industry. I watched every film I could get my hands on, every TV show I could get my hands on. And funnily enough, to me, it's a bit like the Australian film and TV industry because they use the same people all the time, Nigel. (laughs) So uh, you get to know them. And then years later, I met my own Danish man, like my proper Danish partner, my lovely Carsten. You've fallen in love with two Danish men. Well, I think let's say I fell in interest in the the first one and this one I fell in love. Um, But I thought, what a coincidence. How delightful I should fall for a Dane. Um, And so I wanted to include in my five something to do with Denmark and I could have chosen lots of things but this film particularly I guess I chose before it won its Oscar because it's about a midlife crisis which I'm sort of in 54 it's around that time and it's about drinking and um, I'm no wowser Nigel I enjoy drink as much as the next person but I do believe uh, this legalized substance has created more havoc in uh, in the world uh, than just about anything. 
Um, and I am always fascinated by stories of why people drink, why they overdrink, why they need it. Now, this film is about a bunch of middle-aged teachers who are a bit bored with their lives, and one of them reads somewhere that if you keep your alcohol body content at 0.05, life's just a bit better. Not higher, but just keep it at... Now, they think, well, let's do an experiment and we'll write a paper on it just so it's, you know, legitimised in some way. And the fascinating events that unfold from that of, of course, well, let's punch it up a bit higher and they do all relax and it sort of maybe breaks them out of a, a rut they're in, but for what kind of consequences. So it's very interesting and it talks about young Danish drinking culture and we have our own problem with drinking culture here too. And I guess the message by the end of it is to live your life. And um, I think the Danes always make very powerful films. They don't have particularly beautiful mountains to film. It's all an inside look at life. And I, I, I really like that. Midlife crisis? Yes. Spill your guts. Tell us about it. Are you in... I, I would say I was starting to head into a midlife crisis before COVID, but gee, hasn't COVID cemented it? Um, I would say that... I'm a performer, right? And I don't think, I, I went into performing for a few reasons, to meet people. It made me feel confident. I found a group of people I liked. I had something that I wanted to communicate. I probably wanted some audience approval. But they are not the reasons I'm in it now. Now it's a job. And I don't know how much I love it anymore. Right. And that's confronting. I'm like, well, well what are you going to do? You're not trained to do anything else, actually. So I guess I'm, and I'm in a very lucky position that I can say no to things I don't want to do, but the things I do do like home delivery or rock quiz, which we still do live, or, you know, certain events like hosting the APRA Awards, which is interesting to me because it's about music. But I still, there is a part of me, and I guess you do something long enough, you start to go, well, what else is there, I guess? And COVID, having cancelled a whole year's work, you go, wow, so if I never had that work that defines me, who am I? So uh, this is, uh, you're speaking to my heart because I, I, I'm writing a book about this as we speak. Ah, but I, yeah. I call it the third trimester. Oh, bloody hell, I love so, it. So if you've got, if, if I mean, you look about 17, but if just pretend we're the similar age. Sure, mate. Um, it is you've got 20 good summers left. Thank you. Oh, right? geez, that's really yeah. knocking it down, isn't that's it? That's it. Yeah, let's, let's get real. So you then go, so what are you going to do with it? Shit. You're going to stay doing something you don't really like. Well, that's right. Good luck with that. There's not a medal for doing something you don't like for the extra twenty years. Totally. So, it, 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 I, I find it an interesting time of life. So, so you're you're right slap bang in the middle of thinking about how to spend those summers. Yeah, and um, my thing is, I really love being with people, and that's the one thing COVID's going to make difficult. Like, I'm not a person who can have a third trimester on the computer. Right. I mean, I'm still struggling, really, saving emails. I mean, I, you know. But I was never taught how to use a computer. I'm a performer. We're not, that's not our thing. And we've had to learn how to use it for, I mean, I can write an email, obviously, but social media, all that stuff, and I can do it. But I don't love it. And so I'm not someone who can do something remotely. I like to be with people, whether it was to teach drama for people who don't want to be famous, because I think drama is useful for you just as a person. You know, gee, I'd be pretty keen to go into Parliament House and just teach them a few things in there about how to just be human and care for others. Um, whatever it is, it involves people and, and, and being in close proximity. I'd like to do stuff with the elderly. Like I want to volunteer more. 
And just and before COVID, I was going to take six months off and just do that, just do some volunteering. And and now that's a bit difficult because of COVID. You know, you can't just go anywhere you want and be of help. And um, there are certain certain protocols. So yeah, I'm still investigating it. I'm still thinking about what that is. I really don't know. I so, really don't know. So I can three things to is right. something to do, something, something to, do. to look forward to, yeah. and someone to love. And you've got the last one. I do. Because your second Dane, if I can call him that, Carsten yeah. or the second yeah. Dane, whichever you prefer. Yeah. Uh, um, to chat to me about, um, how can I say this without sounding trite, you know, finding love slightly later or whatever. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and like the, the stepmom thing and all that. I mean, you're, you're a bit more mature and grown up. You're not some idiotic 17-year-old, yeah. you know, with the high school boy pissed in the pub. Yeah. You, you know, you've, you're both independent, successful people. Yeah. So. Um, well, I guess for me... It's with Carsten is that I I feel like really the first conversation we had, I thought I can trust you and trust is hard. It's particularly hard if you're in the public eye too because, I don't know, people want different things from you maybe or they're not sincere. But as I got to know him, uh, he's someone who was brought up in a very simple and strong way. He has morals and he has um, uh, thing, he, he doesn't get stressed by anything. He's so calm. He's amenable. He's not threatened by a woman who, you know, has power for all, for want of a better word, you know, who has her own money and her own, and I can't even believe I have to say that in a sentence, but we full well know that um, many women can't live the lives they want because they have a partner who is somehow controlling them. And we give each other full freedom to be who we need to be and we make sure we talk regularly about how to make that better. And he has two uh, glorious sons who, when we got together, were 12 and 13. They're now 19 and 20 and at uni. And that's been a really wonderful um, time. And, you know, I... I, I sometimes feel like I'm their friend rather than their stepmother and I really, uh, I, I, I'm in awe of their mum and, and the job that she's done and, and that Carsten's done. They're really good men, young men, and it's just wonderful seeing them grow up. And I think you're right. I think when you're a bit older, you kind of know what you want. And But I guess my journey with him has been to learn how to share and learn how to be in a relationship I had been alone for seven years. I'd had some adventures, but I'd been single and I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm too self-sufficient and no one is that self-sufficient. We all need someone. But my journey has been to how to grow closer to someone and I've had to learn and, and, and alter how I do things. And, and him, he sometimes, he knows how to be in a relationship. I'm sometimes saying, can you learn to be a bit on your own as well? Can you find your space by yourself? And it's good. If you can talk about it, it's good. And, I, you know, again, if you need alcohol to be able to talk all the time, you're in trouble. You've got to be able to know how to sit with someone and just go, what are we afraid of? We can't be afraid of having a conversation. The world is not going to swallow you up, which I think sometimes is what, what we think. Pretend this is the uh, therapist couch. Um, trust issues. Do you mm. think you struggle with that? This is pre-Carsten. Yeah. Uh, where would they come from and, and how do they manifest itself? I, I guess... Well, say in terms of love, I've never quite believed it when a man says something lovely about you. You know, I just always feel like it's a means to an end. So that's why I prefer... Being, being sex. 
Being sex, yeah. yeah. But, uh, so I would, you know, part of me, I would rather work with someone or see someone every day through either work situation or, or whatever it might be where you get to know that person and you think, well, he's kind to people. He's not nasty to waiters. Um, he's thinking about that. He's thoughtful. And then a few weeks in you might go, I, okay, this seems like a good place to maybe ask for a date. That's That's how I work, you know. And I think that we give trust too easily. We, we make decisions about people too quickly. Taking time to meet someone is, is, not going to, is not going to kill the vibe. And if it does, well, then get out. Get out. Um, but I think, I think at school I just made really close friendships a couple of times with girls, I have to say, who then totally betrayed you. And I, I, I really, I, I think I must have been a very naive kid. I mean, aren't all kids naive? But I just remember going, wow, I mean, you just really 360'd around on that. Like, and I know I can be quite literal, so that is my nature to see, I believe what I see or whatever. But I think that's where the trust stuff comes from because my parents have both been, have always been quite honest with me about things, so it's not from them. I think school, they're just a couple of girls that you find yourself alone or dumped from the group and you're thinking, oh, what was that about? So I think you never take it for granted again. And I think with guys... Um, yeah, sometimes I think, I mean, it's not their fault. I think they see stuff on TV and in film and think, oh, that's what you say to a girl. And it's like, actually, just be yourself and, you know, let's go for a walk. Who cares? Were you at an all-girls school? or a- Yeah, I was. I was at Sydney Girls High here, a selective school. And I loved the order of it. I loved structure of school. I loved turning up. I adore wearing a uniform. I love not having to think about what to wear every day. I was not an A-grade student by any means. But I enjoyed it. I had several nice groups. But along the way, and in primary too, you make these intense friendships that then just turn on you. And that's part of growing up. It's, it's part of life. But, um, oh, God, it's gutting. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, well, I've got four kids and, and, yes, gosh, you sort of live your life through them. And, and when, they're, when they're having a hard time, you go, pick me. You know, oh, pick, you know, pick yeah, me. I mean, yeah. I, whatever they're going through, I will gladly go through Take it. Take it. Oh, don't. And you can't because that, what, that's what builds you. So yeah. We're going to move to your second choice. And like your theatre sports compatriot, Rob Carlton, you have messed with my format. Have I? Yes. But because we love you and we, oh. and we make allowances for you creative actor types, yeah, we're going right. to let you, Julia Zamiro, choose a play, not a book, like it said in the briefing. Gee. Yeah. So we're going back 400 years. Jesus. And uh, <laughs> we're going to Twelfth Night by dear old Bill, Bill Mr. Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Look, I would have picked Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, but I just feel like everyone's talked about The Handmaid's Tale to death. Um, and, uh, and, uh, but that would have been my book, FYI, everybody. And I read it once a year. You read The Handmaid's Tale once a year? Yes. I think it's important to read The Handmaid's Tale once a year because it is a, uh, a warning. Right. About, uh, I think it's a warning about just when you think this is too ridiculous to happen, it actually could happen. And I think it's a very different thing from the TV show. I only watched the first series of TV show. I can't do any more because I think it's all an invention. It's not what Margaret wrote. And in fact, the final chapter of Margaret's book of The Handmaid's Tale makes sense of the whole book and they still haven't filmed that. And it's driving me nuts. So I, uh, uh, I, I think that book is magnificent and she writes beautifully and she's Canadian and we adore her and I got to finally meet her once and it was really one of the top five meetings of my life. Twelfth Night. 
is every bit as current because it's got the gender identity yeah. thing in it. I'm not sure Bill was intending it in the way that I'm thinking of it, but anyway, so it, it's just as just as current uh, yeah. uh, as uh, Handmaid's Tale. Look, look, I am not a worshipper of. William Shakespeare, I, I don't, you know, people go, oh, William Shakespeare, it's all still so relevant today. Yeah, sure it is. But there's lots of other really good plays being written. Um, but the language is beautiful and I would often argue that it is more fun to say it than to watch it sometimes if you're into that kind of thing. But Twelfth Night I've done many times. I've done it as a play in a kind of an amateur professional sense and I did it for the Bell Shakespeare Company as part of their education program and so... Four of us, two guys, two girls, would get in a van every morning at 6am and we would drive to a school and we would unpack all our stuff and we would set up 300 chairs in a hall or a gym and the kids would come in and they would be either junior or senior high school and we would do excerpts from the plays and Twelfth Night was one of them and then we would have questions at the end and then we would pack it all up and then drive to another school and do two a day for six months. Wow. And it is seriously in the top five jobs of my life because I was just out of acting school, I couldn't believe I was getting regular money in the ATM. Oh, my God. There was $800 every week. I I didn't spend any money for the first three months. I was in shock. I love the gig because you felt like, well, kids are great. I just love kids anyway. But it was, you know, they say kids are honest and they sort of were, but sometimes kids would be like, they, they would get into it. And we would also, the show was broken down in a way that would explain to them that Shakespeare, unless you hear it out loud, unless you see people moving in it and actually choosing objectives as actors, it's a bit dead on the page. It's not a novel. And that would often be a revelation. And teachers love actors coming in to do that because they can't do that all, all themselves. So, and, you know, you'd get great feedback. Like we were into this school and a kid came out afterwards and said to a friend who'd just seen it, did you see that Shakespeare show? He goes, yeah. He goes, was it shit? He goes, no, it was good. And that's something that I can live by and put on a flyer. <laughs> it wasn't uh, shit. It wasn't shit. <laughs> and that's good, you know. Um, and then you go to the posh schools where they would be very well behaved and, you know, ask all the right questions. And then you go to some private boys schools where they'd ask you questions like, do you get paid for this? And is it as much as the doll? And um, do you even have to train for something like this? And it was a great way to set the record straight for people about the industry, about what acting is, about what art is. Um, And with Twelfth Night, um, it is a fabulous shorter of the plays uh, where a a girl dresses as a boy to infiltrate uh, a world and she's undercover. Um, It's about not being able to say how you really feel. It's about love denied. It's about what the nature of love is. And the play also gets quite dark. It's about possessive love. And I think that is very current now. Possessive love is not love. If, if possessive love stops you from seeing your friends and doing what you want to do, that is a danger place. Now, now you're talking as if, if I were Sherlock Holmes, um, which I most definitely am not, uh, that you have been burned by that particular love. Would that be a fair assumption? No, I have not, but well, I'm an, an ambassador. Observer. I'm an ambassador for domestic violence right. for women with our watch. So I, I didn't mean violence. I, I meant sort of somebody who was well, controlling yeah. you. Well, I guess I take it to that. That's the further extreme because it starts off as small. Yep. It can start off as small. But I guess when you watch Twelfth Night, there's one character who will not take no for an answer. He doesn't abuse the woman, but it's like it's all about his love for her. 
it's not even about her, but it's about a kind of idea of what love is. And I think we need to expand in the world what our idea of love is. And I think if love is unfortunately mirrored to to millions of people who watch it, a married at first sight or a bachelor, and I know there are some really smart people out there that do clever analysis of it to say this is what not to do in relationships. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the message people get. So, you know, it's bad enough to be filmed boy meets girl, boy loses girl, and that's the only story ever, you know, where's boy meets boy, where's girl meets girl, where's other meets other. But um, shows like that just confirm crazy ideas that are old and dead. And I don't know, I just think it's a play that, if you watch it and, and like it's like watching also a foreign film when you go to Shakespeare, it takes a while to get used to the subtitles, even, you know, whatever you go, oh, yeah, 10 minutes here, you sort of in Shakespeare, you've got to let it get into you. But in it you see this love-struck guy who will never get what he wants and then finally has to accept that. We can't get everything we want. And I think sometimes romance in film says do anything to get her. Yep. And it's like, mate, no, choose someone else. Because she's not interested. I'm going to change tack and say, because you are acting in that, uh, and I've seen you in some fabulous things during this some research process, but talk to me about the the difference between acting and hosting, the, the pros and cons and your like or dislike of, of the two different disciplines. So I trained as an actor and really, really loved being someone else. I think the whole point of, before, of being an actor is that you put yourself in a character that might be like you or not be like you. And again, that's why I'd love to have my own acting school called Come to Me If You Don't Want to Be Famous because maybe that's how you teach empathy. Maybe that really is where you go, I mean, you know, when people will not put themselves in other people's shoes, I'm like, how can you not sometimes think of what it must be like to be trapped in a flood or to not be able to get out of your house or to not be able to get the education you deserve because of the colour of your skin? Do you not sometimes think about that? And that's why actors are wonderful people because they do investigate that. But you're uh, all mad, aren't you? Well, if if we're mad, it's a good mad. A good madness, okay. I think politicians are mad in a dangerous way. <laughs> you know, I think actors, I think if that, that, that idea that actors are mad I think just comes from they don't know where their next dollar's coming from and they're going to go, how the hell am I going to pay my rent because of the uh, ridiculous way we're paid, you know. So, you know... When when JobKeeper came in to, you know, help so many people in such a great way, when the arts was completely dismissed from that, uh, what I couldn't believe was, does the arts minister really not know how people are paid in the industry? Because it's your job to know how people are paid. So I think people think I do home delivery on the ABC, I'm on a five-year contract. I'm not. I'm paid by them for three months and then it's finished. I don't know if there's another one. I genuinely don't know if we're doing it again. So in between, what happens? It's a barbaric slaughterhouse yeah. of the gig economy in the entertainment industry. Yeah. And, and I have to say, you're, uh, uh, I was going to come and talk to you about this later, but the, the evidence and proof of your career in its variety and in its length says something quite remarkable about you. Because, uh, I mean, I, I, I do a little bit of the gig economy myself, is I know... Uh, a little bit what that may be like and especially as a woman and what you go to have the success that you've had over the time does speak to some 
unusual tenacity and resilience because I mean we all know the story about Rockwiz but that didn't happen until he was 37 or 38 or whatever so there must have been some dark nights of the soul when you were 26 or 32 when you're thinking bloody hell I want a regular income yeah but I'll tell you what I didn't have um it was not put on me and I didn't have it from within me from my parents of if you're not married with children by the time you're 30, you're a failure. Now, that's not to say they might not have wanted to be grandparents, but I think when you have an internal clock going, well, what success look like? It has to be this. I was free. So I'm in a really lucky position in that, well, I chose to be in a position that said, well, I, I don't have anyone relying on me. I am a free agent. That's unusual for a woman. A lot of guys can do that. Um, and I guess I didn't think that strongly about it. I sort of got that. But I will say that, you know, by the time I was 37 and Rockwiz I didn't know was around the corner, I do remember thinking if by 40 something hasn't happened, um, maybe 40 is a good number to start thinking about something else. Trained to be an accountant. No, I would have gone to teaching, definitely done right. a dip ed and done teaching. But, um, but also, you know, you can't go into it thinking the jobs are all there for you either. You know, because we are making too many performers in this country for the jobs that we have. And now that they can't go overseas, and I say they because I'm, I'm not interested in going overseas, but really, you know, years ago when Judy Davis and Mel Gibson first went to America, that was a bit unusual. You know, now it's de rigueur. Like you have to go and do pilot season. You are going to go and do that. But now that's been cut off. It's devastating. If your dream was to be on Broadway, if your dream was to go and study overseas, if your dream, no. Now, that is going to lessen how many people are going to be in the industry possibly. Who knows? We're going to move 400 years uh, into the future, yes. the 1960s, uh, and we're going to add to the Five of My Life Spotify playlist uh, the Joe Cocker version of With a Little Help from My Friends. Yeah. Tell us your story, Julia. Look, I love the Beatles. You know, Beatles or Stones? What about you? What are you, Nigel, if I say Beatles or Stones? Uh, are well, you in that we'll camp? About, so non-drinker, dull Nigel, Beatles. But oh. yeah. Well, see, but why are the Stones considered, the yeah, the dangerous ones? Look, Beatles for me, there's just something about their harmonies and something about, you know, I love the Stones too, not saying. But um, but you've chosen the Cocker version? Yeah, I've got, I have, I know, I know. Because it's not as um, sickly sweet and as upbeat. It's kind of bluesier and rockier and and I love Joe's voice. And I've always loved that song. And then when Rockwiz turned 100 episodes in and we ended up doing about 200 for TV, I mean, we really were the little show that could. There is just no way that show was going to make it except we found this fabulous cult audience on SBS and they followed us. So the 100th episode, the team decided to do, with a little help from my friends, Cocker version, with Dan Sultan and Ella Hooper singing it. And we had Ash Naylor from Even just rocking on a guitar and the band, Pete Luscombe, James Black, Mark Ferry. We had the Wolfgram sisters doing um, backup vocals. The room was packed because we filmed at the SB Hotel in St Kilda in the Gershwin Room. We packed that room out. And it, we always have little goosebump moments there. But this was really goosebumpy and a real 
landmark for us to go, a milestone, I should say, that we got 100 episodes in. It's Dan at his absolute finest and Ella at her absolute finest. And it was a true celebration of saying this show is about this family that we are now, these friends that have become family. And um, whenever I hear it, I, I get taken right back there. I am um, obviously for, for this, I, I went and found the footage of that performance uh, and I watched it fi- literally five times in a row. Oh. Uh, and my wife said, what the hell are you doing? Because it, obviously she could just hear, <laughs> you know, the same bloody song. Uh, but it's it's electric, oh. even just seeing it on a small little laptop screen, because there are sometimes it could be a game of rugby. It could be a business meeting where everything works. And, and what are they called? The grammar sister, the backing singers. The Wolfgram sisters, Holy yeah. Holy yeah. guacamole. So yeah. I, I looked at, I mean, I'm getting sort of goosebumps now. Yeah. You go, to have been there at that moment, it's like I saw, you know, the very one of the very first Smiths concerts. And you go, wow. never be taken away from you. He had the gladioli stuck in his pocket, blah, blah. Unreal. He's, I wish I'd been there for that 100th yeah. episode because they were both, and you could see he he's clapping his hands. Yeah. At the, he, he, he's sort of overexcited but in a way that works. I'm so glad you noticed that's one of my favourite bits in it too. <laughs> and and he's so in his zone and Ella's who she is. You know, I think what's great with music is when you can let people just be do what they do in their own space in a song. And the Wolfgram sisters, all three of them were there. I mean, when sisters harmonise, are you joking? I mean, of course. Are they actually sisters? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not just a name. No, no, no. They are sisters and are very musical and they've been with us from the beginning in, in, in different ways. And, yeah, I just it's just such a great song. And I think, too, you know, it, it's about leaning on people. But I think just the, the Cocker version has some ebbs and flows in it, some climaxes that go and then go again, then go again. And you just like, and then there's drums in the middle of it. It just takes you on this very physical journey. And um, if I could sing like Dan sings, I would sing it like that also, but I cannot. So I, I, I just enjoy it through him. I live it through him and through Ella. So, so in the Beatles version, it's actually Ringo that does the, the vocals. Oh, my God, it is too. Yeah. Your fourth choice on Five My Life is your place. And you, we're going from Australia to France, and you have chosen the capital city, Paris. Tell us about it. Well, I was born in Aix-en-Provence, which is in the south of France, and my dad is from there too, and my mum is from Queensland, but she luckily got on a big, got on a big boat uh, in the 60s and went to France and found my dad on that boat. He was a waiter. Um, Aix-en-Provence is where I was born. We left there when I was two. I've been back several times, but I don't uh, feel as connected or free there because there's always sort of family duties and you are always being told about the place through other people's eyes. And I'm really alone there. But as an adult, when I was finally able to go to, say, Paris by myself as a 19-year-old, and I've only been there a handful of times, maybe six or seven times, and I've lived by myself there for a month. I, I, I got an Airbnb and, and stayed there. They weren't called Airbnbs then. They were just called service departments. Um, I did have a little pretend that I was living there for a month, you know, like this could be the sliding doors moment if I had moved here. And But Paris for me, you know, some people say they go to New York and they feel like they've seen every episode of, you know, you know, cop shows they've seen or movies or whatever. For me, it's France. It's Paris. And you walk down those streets and you just, it feels very familiar, yet you don't really know where you are. You can never get lost because you just go underground and get on that metro and you'll get back. I'm still gobsmacked by the Eiffel Tower. There's a particular train you can get 
and you'll just be on it and it'll come out of its tunnel and all of a sudden, bang, there she is, like right in your face. And I still think it's extraordinary, this ugly, beautiful tower that they built for a, uh, for a um an and exhibition, that, uh, yeah, yeah, an exhibition. It was an ad, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah basically. And, yeah, and then they were going to tear down and then everybody fell in love with it and they went, oh, let's keep it. Um, I get to speak the language. I get to not be recognised. I mean, occasional Australians might be there and recognise you, but I just, yeah, there's just something lovely and the food is great and the feeling and the smells. I first went there when I was nine with my parents and I, I still, I still recognise smells from that time. There's something that brings you back there. I just love it. And you, and it's unknowable. I mean, you could visit there a million times and not really know every part of it. So my sadness around COVID is that it might be a long time before we get to go away again. Regrets. Have you any, I won't believe if you, if you say you haven't, but have you got any regrets? I, I absolutely pe- believe people have regrets. Yeah. I think that's rubbish. Can, can, can you uh, oh, yes, tell can. us about one or two or a yeah. hundred? No, no, I'll tell you. My main one's not having children. Okay, right. Definitely. And it's not that I can't, although it didn't, that's, I haven't had that particularly looked at. But um, I did try in a couple of different ways. And I think I honestly believe that you, can't, you shouldn't have children unless you've got everything sorted. So you should have your house and you should have somewhere to live and you should have money and you should have and the perfect partner and all that. And I think that I just put it, I kept putting it off, kept putting it off. And I think I would have enjoyed it. But I also would have liked to have been a younger mother. I don't want to be one, I wouldn't have wanted to be one too too much older. I don't think that would have suited me. Um, and that time's definitely passed. So, but when we were young, we were so encouraged not to have children or to have careers or, and which is great, except you really can't always do it all, especially not if you're not supported by the government in terms of saying, well, maternity leave and paternity leave. And what I really don't understand is that the world can't keep going if we don't have kids. And who does the bulk of the work in getting it here? It's women. Now, whether you're pro or not, and I'm not getting on a rant, you know, oh, God forbid we're talking about women again, but they do do the bulk of the work and they're exhausted and then they're not really thought about in terms of getting back to work and being back on the same playing field. I mean, what more do you want women to do, right? So until you can have them yourselves, boys, you know, don't tell us to have children and one for the country if you're not going to absolutely support that person 100%. Um, in all the things she may need around children and rearing them. Um, so... So, yeah, being a young a young mum has not always been, whereas in Denmark there's young parents everywhere because there's maternity leave, paternity leave. It is normal, 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 normal. Uni's free. So there's all the, you pay a lot of tax, but you see where it goes. So would you live in Denmark? You clearly love the place and love the, love the people. Um, oh, okay, well, this is where we have to go. It is too cold. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I mean, it, I love it for four months of the year. Yeah. And I've been there lots. And even Carsten, who, you know, who used to go out in the snow and do a paper run at 5am when he was a kid, he's gotten used to Australian weather and it is cold and it's dark. I think Australia, if you live in Australia all your life, you really do get used to a certain amount of light. And if you don't get that same amount of light, like it's, it, it hurts, I think. 
And um, I found even France dark in the times I've been there in winter. So in, in Denmark, I think it's just too long. And they admit it themselves. They, they admit it themselves. So I would, you know, if we could travel again easily, uh, I'd be there absolutely in your, in your spring, in your summer, in your autumn. <laughs> and then I'd come back here uh, for the two hot times. I think out we're a bit too hot here. But, um, but yeah, de- but Denmark, the way they run things, there's a, there's a lot to like. There's a lot that's not, no one's perfect. It just annoys me that we don't look at the way other countries do things and genuinely bring that back, you know, the Finnish education system, you know, the fact that in Finland teachers have to have as high a mark as a someone doing medicine. Um, you know, it should be a job that is the most important uh, job and that is, again, revered and, and, and helped along, so... Coming to your fifth and last choice, which is usually uh, my favourite choice on Five of My Life, but Ooh. in this case, I'm going to have to tread very, very carefully no, because you it's are. your body. Mm. So I have, I'm just going to say, why? So it's funny when you said possession. I'm looking at possession going, mm. possession. And I'm really someone, if I lose something, I'm fine. Like I don't really, and I don't really amass things of great importance. I mean, honestly, I've, I've, I have gone back to, to get a cardigan, a favourite cardigan, I'm not going to put that down as my possession because I just got, it's just a perfect black cardigan that does everything I needed to do. And I can, I have, I've caught trains to go back and get a cardigan. But possessions are so fleeting and even if you buy a beautiful artwork and it's there, whatever, and so I really had to think of it and, and what can you really ever possess? You can always lose something. And I was going to say my health, but then that too is sort of uncontrollable sometimes. So I was going to say my body. You know, I I like to say it's the suitcase you arrived in, for better or for worse. Mine's been pretty good to me, but I've been pretty good to it. And I just do marvel at it, and I'm looking at it now, listeners, at my body, Uh, and I just go, these legs carry me, um, this heart makes me feel, my brain gives me my sense of humour, I love what it can do still. I mean, I'm 54 and I've hit menopause. There's a sexy word, guys. Um, And um, I'm now aware of how much more strong I have to be, like I have to become stronger uh, not fitter necessarily, but just to keep, you know, all the all the things that you're starting to lose at, at, in that age group. And, you know, you can abuse a body and it still comes back. You know, you, it can still be strong. It can still repair. And it's the thing that carries you. It's the thing that takes you where you want to go. It's the thing that um, feels, that can have sensation. And... I really value mine. I really value it and what it can do. Tell me about the M word because I didn't uh, know anything about it as an idiotic, unreconstructed man Uh, and I have been shocked at how little I know about menopause but also shocked at female friends of mine saying how little other women and doctors know about it, going to the doctor and being prescribed antidepressants. You go, mate, I wanted something, I don't know, HRT or something. So so is it it a uh, a horrific catastrophe for you or are you... I was as as ignorant about it as as the next person because my mum's menopause wasn't particularly traumatic and neither's mine been actually, but hormones are unbelievable. You know, when little boys get a surge of hormones when they're four, when girls and boys go through puberty, that surge of hormones, losing hormones, hormones are dangerous and weird and full on. So when you lose them or gain them, we need to pay attention. We shouldn't just be talking about moods. You should be talking about this particular thing that you need 
but how it just plays with you. And so because you lose estrogen, you've got to find it, you've got to find it in different ways. And it might be HRT, it might be through a certain kind of exercise or diet or whatever. But it does change you. So from the full extent of how terrible it can be, there is, you know, the hot sweats and there is loss of libido and there is um, you can't lose weight as easily as you used to. And it's sort of your body rebelling against you. Now, I think if you've had children, a woman knows about hormones already and what the body can do. Because I haven't had children, for me it has been a big kind of wake-up call of, oh, your body can do so much and you can rely on youth to a certain degree, but then it is up to you to work a bit more with it. And so it's just been great to read about it. And to again, we should be reading these books and that chapter once a year. That should be something that we acquaint ourselves with. And, you know, doctors don't know enough about it. Of course, some do. And it's having that conversation again and not being afraid of it. If we can bring a, if we talk about mental health and we can talk about menopause. Um, the wonderful Jean Kitson wrote a book about 10, 15 years ago when she was going through it or maybe 10 years ago and she wrote a fabulous book about it saying exactly that. No one's talking about it. But I think that sort of died down again. And so, you know, now if you're an older woman, you talk about it, it's, it's good too. But, you know, some people, women get it at 40, which is awful, way too early. And it is also the end of being able to have children. So if you haven't had children, that's quite significant. And, you know, it's it's another time marker, isn't it? Start of the third trimester. It's the start of your third trimester. That is correct. So having the regret of not having had children, I do have, you know, some fabulous kind of nieces and nephews around there, godkids um, and my beautiful stepsons. And, you know, you can be around children if you choose to, you find them and, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But, yeah, that feeling of what it is to parent in that really deep way, um, biologically in that way, I think would have been a, a really exciting adventure. We're going to come to the last trick question. Who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next and why? Um, in this current climate, mm, well, no, I won't say that. Um, yeah, go on, s- s- say the thing you can't say and then say the other thing. Well, I mean, you know, I'd like you to get Scott Morrison in here and hey, see if you can see if you can get through to what makes the guy tick and um, if these five things somehow can unearth something, uh, good luck to you. But um, he runs the country and he's not my prime minister at all. It doesn't stand for anything. I, and I, I would genuinely, but it's, it's about, again, it's about spin, you know, and I think if people agree to come and do something like this, they have to agree to drop in a little bit and, and talk about themselves. And if, if politicians are never going to do that ever, then there's something broken with that system, not interested. Somehow, and we can't keep using Jacinda Ardern as the example, but um, Jacinda seems to be able to look like she feels and thinks about people. You know, God forbid, I think you have to like people to, to look after a country, all people, and have to find a way to manoeuvre that and, and, and um, sometimes... It's interesting. It's not about normalising what kind of guy he is, but, you know, but I just don't think you'd get past um, the spin that I think he's just naturally born with, which is to somehow market himself or spin himself or say, look over here. 
uh, I think. But if you could get Björk. Oh. Now, Björk is um, my Icelandic uh, fantasy. I often say if I could get, get her on home delivery. So you and I could fight it out for her on home delivery. I would love to take Björk back to Iceland because that's what home delivery does. You take them back to their childhood home because I think where she grew up is so fundamentally connected to the kind of artist she is. It's a dangerous landscape. It's a harsh landscape, but it's got warm people and seems everyone knows each other, but everyone wants to get away from each other and want to come back and return. There's volcanoes that erupt and stop the world. How great was that moment? Um, And a a place where, uh, you know, women went on strike once to say, you think you don't, we're on strike, you do it. And gee, things changed. Uh, Where women are in charge, I mean, it, that would be amazing. And she is um, she's someone who whenever I think to myself, oh, come on, take a chance, what would Björk do? Do it. And, I mean, I will never be half the person Björk is. That is just she's not safe. And um, I find that very exciting. Two fabulous, very different choices. Mm. Julia Zamira, it has been just fabulous listening to your choices on The Five of My Life. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you. Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 